your perspective and your understanding changes over time. So it's not like it's a one-off on communication and you never do it again. It's that it's always evolving and changing. And as your expertise and your perception of the world changes, then you need to be looking at some of those things again, some of those things more in depth that are higher level or whatnot. Um, you know, as the science changes, as the social expectations change, as your experience change, those three pieces of being a professional, then, then all of what you know is shifted and, and moved around and you have to keep saying, you know, what is the best science related to this? That it is again, changing quite drastically all the time. Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. My name is Matthew Kristoff, and on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Now, today's episode is truly about your forest, about your resources, your values, and how they're being managed for on the forest landscape. Um, it's a subject I've tried to stay away from only because I don't know how to do it in a obvious and clear, concise way. But I think we did a pretty good job of, of discussing the subject of you know social license and how do we make sure that we're managing the forest for the values of the public and not just assuming that we know what the values of the public are. And how we how the public wants those values hierarchied in the management system. Uh, I hope that makes sense. What I'm saying, <laughs> it's like I said, it's a weird space, but I really enjoyed this conversation because I got to have a long, detailed, broken down discussion about how do we hold forest professionals accountable? How do we hold the forest industry accountable um, in a time and place where society's values are changing rapidly? You know, with the internet, uh, there's more communication, uh, groups that maybe didn't have a voice before have a voice now, uh, as such the forest industry and forest professionals have to respond to that and make sure that they're not missing something and that all of the values that the public hold are being included in the plan. Right. Um, so how do we do that? How do we make sure that no one's missed, that everyone's values are being heard? How do we make sure that, uh, the industry as a whole and the professionals in that industry are keeping up with the times. How do we know that they are continuing to learn and to change their values and how they manage based off the societal change that is happening uh, at speed? You know, I mean, I know that the things I learned in school 10 years ago when I graduated uh, have changed a lot. And I have to keep up the date with to know that stuff. So that's what we're talking about today is how does a, a system that manages for public values, public resources, keep up with society's demands of it. So to have that conversation today, we are talking with Carla Ryan. Now she is the executive director and registrar for the Association of Alberta Forest Management Professionals. That's the regulator body here in Alberta. And I figured she was a great person to talk to about this because it's her job to protect the public interest when it comes to forest management. So she's the perfect person to talk to. Um, yeah, so we talked all kinds of different cool things and uh, we'll get into it. Sponsors for this episode, 
Uh, West Fraser is the number one sponsor for 2022. Without them, this would not be possible. So thank you, West Fraser, for all of your support over the years. It's been great. And Greenlink Forestry is also a sponsor. Been with me since the beginning. Could not do this without Greenlink. Thank you, Greenlink, for all of your support. And that's it. Let's dive into this complicated, weird space of, you know, social license and communication and listening and how that applies to the managing of forest resources and public resources. Uh, yeah, it was a weird one, but an awesome one. <laughs> I, I've avoided having this conversation because I wasn't sure how to do it in a logical step-by-step way, but I think we managed to do that and make a good case for it and to to come away with some really good takeaways for everybody at the end that were pretty straightforward and easy to understand. So, yeah, here we go. Yeah, I think the first place we want to start is uh, get to know you a little bit. So maybe you want to tell me, because you you don't have a, a forest management or like a landscape management background, right? Actually, I originally went to school for integrated integrated resource management oh, okay so yeah. it is okay so it is in that okay yeah um so how did you yeah maybe you want to just talk about like the role you're in how you got into this role and like how why the role that you're in now is something that you know is, is something you've become passionate about something that's you know worth the incredible amount of time that i know you put into it <laughs> <laughs> sure. so i i often tell people i'm the jack of all trades and master of none because um, i have a bit of an eclectic background so i come from a logging family okay um Log for a long, a lot of years, even extended family cousins, lots of loggers. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. So I went coming out of high school, I started tree planting and spacing and working mm. on fires, things like that. And, uh, then did some other work for a little while and decided to go back to school and started in the integrated resource management program at Northwest Community College eons ago. Where's Northwest Community College? I don't even know. Smithers. Smithers. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm from BC. Gotcha. I grew up in the interior, moved to Northwestern BC where my mom's family is from. Okay. And, um, so I started that program, uh, absolutely loved it. And I'm definitely a, a plant geek for sure. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, um, Another thing I didn't know about you, I thought you were definitely like a systems geek. But. Oh no! So yeah, funny enough, I'm I, me personally, I'm not really so much like I am at work. I'm, I right. don't like rules, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I live in a world of policy and writing rules. Most of my time is spent writing rules. So yeah, okay. I have I have some very opposite quirks to to me, I guess. That's funny. Um, so when I was in the course, it was supposed to be inclusive of the basically the forest technologist program, and then there was supposed to be another six months of this integrated resource looking at other things. Okay. And they decided to drop that portion of it. And then they decided, or in this bigger picture of things, there was a softwood lumber agreement that was failing with the U.S. And then the industry completely stagnated. So at that point, I thought, well, it's kind of pointless to, to finish with this. So I did a year and a half of the two and a half year program. Gotcha. Um, but I really lucked out because the courses that I did take were all the courses that I use every single day in my job. And I have used every single course that I ever took. Nice. And uh, the course was a really good program because... Because they actually made it so it was a university transfer program and everything oh. was transferable completely to university. So I have basically two years of university. That's helpful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, so I took some time off to have my son and then I started working for nonprofits. 
And I worked with an indigenous organization for a couple of years, moved to Alberta. I've been here about 15 years now. And um, I worked with a provincial seniors organization doing advocacy work. And then I started working in agriculture research. And I grew up on a farm. Um, so farming's definitely my other passion in life. Plants. And plants, <laughs> yes, exactly. So I know a lot about grazing, a lot about pastures, Um and a lot about we did because I worked in the West Central region. So yep. I was fortunate enough to work with um, companies like Warehouser, where we were doing uh, integrated land management. So working on leases with producers right. and looking at post-harvest okay. um, effects. So there's a grazing on Aspen Parkland uh, resource manual that was written. So I was part of that research that was done. Oh, nice. Um, so I did that for a little over eight years, and then I ran the outfitted hunting industry for a couple of years in Alberta. And um, then this job, so all of my previous jobs tie into what this is, because it's all of the same stakeholders on the land, working on the landscape the whole time. And so I think I see you know, some of that bigger perspective of how all these pieces tie in together with right. all of the stakeholders and how they're working together. Yeah. So whether it's trappers or outfitters or, or mm. ranchers, um, working with the forestry industry. Yeah. Um, and then I do contract work on the side. So I work for a nonprofit doing, um, wildlife conservation and research as well. And so again, that piece ties in with everything else. And okay. that one's actually, um, out of the U S, but it covers U S and Canada. And so, um, Which nonprofit? Uh, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. So it's, it's we talked great. about that. I just remember now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's great because it gives me a different perspective of again of looking at how things are different even across Canada and the different legislation and jurisdictions, how we function together. Yeah. And then looking at the U.S. and the models that they have for um, forest management and for wildlife management as well. And, and yeah. you know, so how some of them are more supportive, less supportive, et cetera. So, uh -huh. yeah. So, and to me, looking at the forestry industry as a whole, I don't want to be like this little silo Right. For our organization saying, you know, we're doing all this paperwork and we want everything very linear and lots of policy, but not being aware that as practitioners, you're trying to work with mother nature and things changing all the time and weather paradigms and yeah. international economies and COVID and all these other things mm -hmm. and us being very rigid about how we do things. Right? right. So, you know, that's a little bit, you know, I think the advantage that I bring is, is you know, seeing all of those systems moving together and how they're working together. Yeah. No, that's huge because, I mean, like, that's that's the world we live in now, right? This, in, like, I think, yeah, in the past it was okay. We could all, like, you know, the biologists could work on, do their own thing and the forestry folks could do their own thing and the conservationists could do their own thing and everything. We were just kind of, you know, filling in our own niches. And now we live in this integrated world, right, where mm – -hmm we're all stepping on each other's toes and we all need that. So like it's a communication is like, and, and understanding a little bit of everything and trying to, you know, have those ties. So it makes perfect sense. It's a good mm -hmm. combo for someone in your position. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I often uh, align it with farming because as a farmer, mm -hmm. you know, I, so I have sheep and pigs and chickens and horses and whatever. So, you know, I'm expected to be a vet and a marketer right. and a butcher and a pasture manager right. and build my own website and do my own accounting and all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you forgot as, shit shoveler, but you yeah, can just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, I always say, well, don't glorify farming too much because 95% of my time is shoveling poop. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Glorious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, so again, yeah. you, you're knowing your limitations, but knowing 
a lot of general things about a lot of things. And that's, you know, very much what a forester is like too, is you, yeah. you come out with this education where, you know, mm. you know, scads and bits of lots of different things, but yeah. you're not a subject matter expert on like, for example, biologist is a great example. Like all of you do fish and wildlife. I did fish and wildlife in my program too. And, but you're not the person that's doing the assessment to figure out if it's a fish bearing stream because that's someone else's expertise, right? Yeah. But you have to know enough that you have to call somebody. Like, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that ties in well to our conversation, right? Like it ties in, we're here kind of to talk about the concept of continuing competence and um, public engagement in the matters of, of forest management and that kind of thing as, as it goes forward in time. And um, before we jump into that, um, I, I think I want to know from you, uh, being the executive director of AFMP, um, what do you, like? How do what do you think is the role of first of all uh, a forest professional, and what is the role of a regulatory body? Like ultimately, like, what's your like? What's the one liner? The one liner. Okay. Um, well, the forest professional is a little trickier, but um, so the role of the regulator is to protect the public interest. Right. Period. Hard stop. Yeah. That's our job. So it's right. not to protect a forester or a forest technologist. It's to protect the public interest um, for a variety of reasons. And to hold the, the professionals accountable for doing that. Yeah. Right. And that's yeah. that's one of the ways that we do it. So yeah. we look after registration. So making sure that people are qualified to come into the profession, either as a forester or a forest technologist, um, looking after discipline. And then looking after continuing competence. So making sure that people are staying competent of what they're doing. Um, and the role of the forest management professional, and this is something that, again, it's like the regulatory profession yeah. has changed over time. So, right. um, so we're actually in a, in a process right now, um, where the government is reviewing legislation in multiple jurisdictions, not just Alberta, um, and trying to make that more clear as to what is the role of the of regulating professions, the regulators, and then the professionals themselves to make it very clear to to all of the stakeholders. Yeah, it's groups, important, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So, well, yeah, exactly. And the reason I ask that is because I think we need to start. If we're going to talk about continuing confidence, we're going to talk about making sure that. Um, professionals out there doing the job that they're supposed to be doing and doing it right we need to make sure that we know what the ultimate goal is mm -hmm. right and so right. i think that's important to point out like this is the whole point of the forest profession is that we're supposed to manage the forest for the public right and um a lot of times that has to do with you know economic activity and, and 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 growing building jobs and that kind of thing and that's a huge part of it right but there's there's so much more to it that's becoming more and more evident as time goes on and now we're in a place where I think in the past, um, forestry could kind of just do their thing. Like mm -hmm. it was, they were kind of – people didn't really know much about it. What they did know, they're like, yeah, they're doing their thing. It's all good. They're out in the bush. They're cutting trees and growing them back and it's good, whatever. And and now with the increase in communication and there's more – there's a lot more transparency, right? Um like I've heard people say like forestry used to be able to work in the shadows and that makes it sound like they're doing something icky, but that's the point is that they were just able to work and not be bothered essentially. Well, and a lot of the time you were out of sight, out of mind, right? Yeah, you're, you're nowhere near the northern city. Northern wherever. Yeah. Or you're a couple hours from town. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as people are getting into the backcountry more, yeah. 
getting in the air more yeah. and seeing some of this, then it became, oh, this isn't good. Public access to satellite imagery and stuff. Right. And like, so Roads, exactly. Yeah, totally. Exactly. So that that public expectation of what, what was going on changed. And to your point, so you'd asked what the role of the forester was, and mm. this ties in well with this, is um, the role of the forester was very much about harvesting timber and getting money out of the timber, right? But, but it... Now, if you look, and I explained to this when we talked ahead of time, was the health professions are very good at defining some of this nebulous right. bit that we're talking about, whereas in the science, other sciences side, the same amount of work hasn't been done. And yeah. obviously, for good reasons, it's about, you know, pub managing public risk. So, yeah. um, but one thing they do clearly articulate um, that is fairly easily transferable is talking about what is the role of the practitioner. And so that practitioner is a applying up-to-date science yeah. to a situation. Yeah. They're applying their experience that they've gained in the field, doing whatever they have specialized in. And then they're applying the public values to that situation. So in the healthcare profession, it would be the individual patient's values. But, right. but when we're looking at something like forestry, it would be, you know, the public, but mm. it may be specific stakeholders and specific areas. So mm. taking those three pieces together, mm. that's what the practitioner is doing. So there's nothing about make sure your employer makes as much money as possible. Right. That's not the job of a forester. Yeah. No. Yeah. So although that is the job of someone in the industry, right? right. So, the, but that's technically, I would argue that those are technically different roles. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but it can be challenging. So, as a forester or a forest technologist, mm -hmm. you know, if your boss is telling you to do X and you know that doing X is not going to be good for the science, yeah, from your experience or to the public good, right? You know, you can often be in a difficult situation of right. what do you do with that? Right? Now what? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And so I think. The big reason I wanted to bring you in to talk about this kind of stuff is to kind of bring out the, the kind of the new age of where, where we're at with, with public engagement in forestry and how things are kind of shifting, right? Like there's a mm -hmm. big shift from being able to just like, yeah, the forest professionals know what they're doing. They're professionals. They're experts. Like let them do their thing and it's all good to now everybody's a little bit more educated. Everyone has a little more access to what's going on and everybody is able to speak their piece. Right. There's mm -hmm. transparency and there's communication. And it's like, okay, now everything's open. And now we need to make sure that the feedback loop is, is reconnected and we're not just working in a silo. We need to make sure that everything's that we're open and transparent about everything we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so I think in the past we used to be able to, there was always a need to consult, right? Consult the public, consult, uh, you know, indigenous groups, consult. Uh, anybody that may have a stake in this space that forestry is happening. And we did this in various different ways, right? Whether it was like uh, getting together with a community with some kind of town hall or mm -hmm. whether it was like flyers or 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 whatever it was. Um, but things are changing now and it needs to be a lot more wholesale. It needs to be – the access needs to be more. Um, how do you think we go about figuring out – like I think, I think in the past we we kind of always knew like, oh, the public interest is X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. right? They want big, beautiful forests to last forever. They want a good, strong economy that goes on forever, and they want to protect whatever in spe species and and this kind of thing. And we kind of 
but we 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 tiered them however we thought as professionals they should be tiered, right? Right. The as hierarchy, to value importance. Yes, yeah. the value importance was however we decided to hierarchy it, and we as as forest professionals. And now we're at a place where we have to maybe rethink that hierarchy. With that in mind, how do you think we go about figuring out? Because we always assumed we knew what the public interest was or public values were. How do we go about figuring out actually what they are? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, and I so I I met a woman years and years and years ago when I was working for the Indigenous organization, and and she always had a great example of these youth programs they developed to develop some, or to address some youth behavior problems um, in Central BC. And so they developed all these great programs. Kids mm-hmm. never came. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Why didn't the kids come? Right. And then they're finally like, oh, we should ask the kids. Yeah. <laughs> and then the kids were like, what? We don't need those programs. And they're like, well, why are you doing all this stuff? And the reason the kids were doing whatever they were doing had nothing to do with what the good intending adults figured it was. Figured it was. Yeah. So the moral of the story was they never asked the end source yes. what they wanted to do, right? So, I mean, the very first thing that any of us can do is ask the end source. Right. <laughs> it's pretty simple, right? Yeah. So, and it's it's not a matter of, you know, me as a professional or you as a professional going to these these groups, whomever they may be, and saying, you know, we're doing X, Y, Z, you need to sign on. And that's our, that's a very colonial way of doing things. Um, And the way, like our societal way of doing things is to say, I drafted a plan. Do you like my plan? Yes. As opposed to saying, hey, Matt, we're a forestry group. We're coming out here to do some work out here. Mm -hmm. Can we sit down and have a conversation before we start anything else? Yes. And see what that looks like. Yeah. And the, the other thing that we're really seeing too, and you know, you, if you've attended any of our events in the last couple of years is, um, you would see some of this messaging, but again, it's that it's not a one-off go to Matt and ask him a question or Matt's community. It's called ongoing relationships yeah. and having communication with these people, whomever they are mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis. So mm-hmm. you don't drop into the city of XYZ and say, we're going to do this and never be seen again. Yeah, You know, it, it has to be again, building long-term communication mm-hmm. that's long-term transparency that's long-term. Mm-hmm. And again, asking right from the beginning. But if we look back, go back to the beginning of our conversation and say, what's your education in? Yeah. You listed off a lot of hard sciences when you talked about what you went to school for. Big time. So yeah. I don't think besides like English, like I had to take a year of English or whatever, right? Yeah, that for, I was like for your technical first writing year. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and there was one communications course, um, but it was like, I think I, yeah, it was like how to write a letter. And then at one point, someone told me they took the communications course and like, okay, for this course, you're going to have to make a Twitter account and you have to tweet. And you're like, what the? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what what do you tweeting? mean? Like, what do you? And so it wasn't like, I wouldn't say they were great courses, but, um, yeah, there was, I think there's more specific soft science needed here, as I think is evident to the way we're going with this conversation, right? Like, mm-hmm. forestry in the past was very hard, it still to this day needs to be very hard science based, uh, profession, industry, research, all that stuff. A hard science, absolutely need it, without a doubt. However, I think the way we've been going with this conversation is that, yeah, there, 
there's a communication piece here that we haven't really needed no. Until very recently. No. And it used to be, you know, like you go out and work in the bush and you'd be in the middle of nowhere and you and one other person and you do your stuff all day, whatever. Yeah. Now, I don't think a forester or a forest technologist job is like that in my perception when I talk to people. Yeah. It's constantly about, you know, meetings with other licensees, mm-hmm. meetings with contractors. Yeah. How are you working with indigenous communities? Yeah. How are you talking with local communities when it comes to, you know, fire prevention, all these types of things? There's a whole different level of communication and interaction that's having to go on. Yeah. Never mind going back to the public and that social license piece. Yeah. And I think in some degrees, forestry has had to deal with social license when we talk about BC and old growth forest. Yeah. If we look time, beyond yeah. that, yep. I don't think forestry has had to in the same degree that the trappers did in the 80s and the 90s that agriculture has gone through in the yeah. last few years and changing what agriculture looks like. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the no farmers, no food stickers you're seeing everywhere now. Right. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. and they're the same thing that, you know, that, that permission to operate, but the transparency pieces, the education pieces, you know, all the pieces that you're mentioning, it's the, they're the same for those industries as well. And they've yeah. had to really rethink how they do things. And, you know, trappers were a great example. They went to the, the no kill traps and, oh, right. you know, all there kinds of ethical. Right. Uh, yeah. They yeah, made yeah. some big changes because yeah. they were at the point where it was like, okay, you're not going to have an industry in two years, period. Right. People don't want to support this. Right. Yeah. And so they, and I'm not a subject matter expert on it, but I, you know, worked with them on some work with Alberta Conservation Association and whatnot. And, you know, know that they had to do some considerable step back, think about the situation. Yeah you know, what's going to, how's this going to change and what's going to evolve. And then they did that and they have continued to get their social license and be able to do what it is that they do. Yeah. Um, but again, not a profession that has a lot of, or, or a um, business that has a lot of interaction with the public as opposed to forestry. Yeah. And there's still a, different too. Scales very right. different. Yeah. And there's still a lot of things that can go on in the practice of forestry that still have significant public impact. So whether we're talking fires or whether we're talking um, erosion issues, Mm -hmm. runoff issues Mm -hmm. into water sources, all those types of things, never mind the fact that the trees and everything that are affected by harvesting trees, that's all a public resource that has to be managed appropriately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I think about... Yeah, like you brought up the the old growth issue, right? In, in in BC, coastal BC, and that kind of thing, and that's had a few iterations now. Of the public is fed up, and they throw up their hands, and 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 things need to change quickly. And it and it it does beg the question of, and I don't know enough about it to speak to what happened or what didn't happen or who was listening or who wasn't, but it does speak to the quality of the listening, right? Right. Um, and whether or not if the public throws up their hands, does an industry change just enough to get the public to back off and forget about it for 10 years or do they actually step back and look at it and go okay what's going on here really why is there such a mis not a misunderstanding why is why are our values not lining up why is it just a misunderstanding but if it is a misunderstanding who is misunderstanding because as forest professionals we often think what's the public 
Mm-hmm. They don't get it. Like they don't understand the science. Yeah. They don't understand that what we're doing is sustainable. They don't understand that this, that, and the other thing. And I think it's easy as, as you know, experts, quote unquote, professionals to think that and to move on and go, ah, whatever, we'll, we'll sort it out. But um, as Milo Mihaljevic has said several times on this show, we've talked, like he's a, he's a glyphosate expert. He's um, a forest, yeah, a, a silvicultural expert. Like he, he spent a lot of time in this public engagement mm-hmm. piece and trying to understand where things go awry. And I think he's developed some incredible skills. Unfortunately, we weren't able to bring him in today, but we managed to get him to, to, to send us a few pointers. And uh, he brought up the point of like actually listening, mm-hmm. right? Regardless mm-hmm. of where the source is coming from, regardless of whether or not the person or the group telling you something holds the same values of you as you or not – doesn't matter. You need to listen to them, right? Mm-hmm. You need to listen and truly listen and try to engage with their ideas and and try to figure out and ask yourself if your ideas and their ideas really do clash or mm-hmm. if there is a way through this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think in the past and even for me, like I, I graduated uh, university 2012. Um, it's only 10 years ago. Um I've never had to deal with that. I've never had to like think about that. I'm just like, oh yeah, we're the professionals and and like we'll do our thing and it's all good. Um, but I didn't have any background in that background in in yeah in in, in communication in a real way and in, in collaboration and building relationships and that kind of thing. And so I think we're kind of getting to the point of today's conversation, which is this continuing competence thing and and the missing the point that i think we're trying to make is a big missing piece that i think both you and i see and also milo i think and other people in forestry profession and our understanding is that piece mm-hmm. right and so now we need to talk about okay we're missing this thing we're missing this public engagement and ability to truly listen and truly understand and and navigate difficult social situations and not just shy away from them or expect them to you know, figure themselves out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, with that in mind, how do we go? How do you think we go about doing this? Like, how do you think we go about promoting? Like, I think it starts with the schools, right? Like, schools obviously should probably have some of that, right? Some of those those classes. But um, beyond that, like, it's easy enough to go to school, take a class, forget all about it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've done well, it several other, times. The other challenge <laughs> with with school too is, you know, and you, and you know this is you you come out of whatever background you come, you come to school, you're going to be a forester, you have whatever preconceived idea that is. Yeah. Um, or like you, you had family that did it, um, that come from the era of the hard science and nothing else, right? Yeah. So you don't, you may not have seen some of that. So when you come in to the, the program that has the hard sciences and you're given some electives, don't take Greek mythology. <laughs> It might be cool, but it how might does that be cool, you? but yeah. do it on your own time. But, yeah. but I think, you know, and maybe this is something that, that some of the programs that are promoting to students and whatnot to, to get into forestry can, can help a little bit with, but, um, is, you know, use your electives effectively to start with yeah. and make sure that there's something. And if you don't know, then ask people. There's RPFs that are, are instructing. There's, you know, sub- different subject matter experts that are in. Yeah. And this comes back again to the point that you said about ask questions. When you have opportunities as a student to network, 
Ask questions. Yeah. Say, what is the one thing that you wish you'd taken in school? What are the, some of the skills you've learned in the last five years that you never thought that you would use before? You know, those types of things and talk to people that are in different areas because forestry is so broad into, you can go everything from tree nurseries and research and, you know, genetics and all this kind of stuff all the way out to harvesting timber and everything in between and then mm. building things after the fact, right? So, um, so that, that's one is, mm-hmm. is starting there. Um, the other thing is remember that you don't know what you don't know. So there's Jahari's window of you don't know what you don't know. Right. You do know when the rest of the world can see on the, the, uh, opposite corner. And then there's what you know, but other people don't know about you or about a situation. And then there's what other people know and that you don't know. Yeah. So, for me, even in the profession I have, which is regulated professions, um, I don't know what I don't know either. And so I spend a lot of weird. time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I spend a lot of time just reading random weird books, white papers, all those types of things. So yeah. oddly enough, one of the books I told you to read, uh, recommended to you to read, um, was a book that's a religious book right. centered about, you know, the mindset of Western practitioners of, of, uh, um, religion is actually a lot of a comparison of Western practice, Western religion versus Eastern religion. Oh, okay. And the whole time I listened to it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so much like just people in general and regulated professions and how we think about things. Mm. Um, there were so many alignments between it. So I, again, I spent a lot of time reading, you know, what would seem like obscure, weird things right. as opposed yeah. to, because our inherent nature is to read and seek information that supports our bias. Big time, of course. All the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I can continue to read things that say, as a regulator, we're doing a bang up job. We're amazing. We don't need to fix anything. Yeah. Or I can keep exploring and saying, well, what about this? And what about yeah. this? And maybe this is different. Expose and, yourself to uncomfortable realities. And, right. Yeah, and how does your at, world fit into that? Yeah. Right. Looking at the history and how we've evolved as regulators over time gives you a, a look at things too because you know sometimes we get frustrated with other regulators or registrants and how their mindset is about the profession but when you look at historically it's like well no wonder they think that right yeah yeah, yeah. or if yeah. that like the paper that you gave to me to read i was like well mm. there's some grossly inaccurate stuff and then i was <laughs> like oh wait a minute if right. people in the in the 90s and up to when that paper was written had read, that was, yeah, yeah. had read that mm-hmm. well no wonder they think these things mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so, so again, cause there are some, some things that I'm like, oh, no, definitely. I see people saying that all the time. And maybe yeah. that's why is they read something that came out of a journal that was yeah. inaccurate. So, and, you know, the other and thing. That paper was, um, I'll just say it. So I remember mm-hmm. to put it in the show notes. Um, has the myth of the omnipotent forester. Something or other, I can't remember. But anyways, it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting right paper asking questions about yeah. yeah the role of a, of a forestry professional and right. and their their tie into society and it right. was, yeah so it's, a, it's first, a cool paper I like but the, it, you're yeah, right there's some the, wrong things there's wrong <laughs> things just on the yeah. structure of of regulators and yeah. a, accreditation of programs and of course that's what you honed in on I was yeah I was no the that. second <laughs> half was really good the second half was really good but again that that's where you can like as as yourself doing continuing competence yeah. it's your obligation to not just look at the things that support what you want to hear. Yes. And they teach you like in a master's program too, when you're doing research, you always find sources that say the opposite of, 
Yes. And look at and compare those. Try to refute it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Because again, it's giving you some different perspectives to the situation, not just reinforcing what it is that you already want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're doing continuing competence, it's the same thing. It's sometimes it's looking at, you know, what are some of these periphery things that I'm not sure if they're related or how are they related? Do you think we've struggled with that? Do you think the forestry profession has struggled with the echo chamber issue? I mean, I think everybody does to some degree. But do you think that's something that um, – do you think we struggle with that? And do you think that's something that's dis- dissolving more now? Do you want to explain a little bit more? So mean? like we we're talking about the, the concept of finding evidence that supports yeah, your yeah. beliefs and like, like oh, we're doing, like, we're doing this, we're doing this. These are all good things. And like, oh, don't worry about that fringe group and don't worry about them. Like we're, we're doing our thing and just heads down, keep going. Do you think uh, the forestry profession has, has struggled with keeping their eyes and ears open two other ideas and do you think it's do you think that's changing or do you think it's still still a you know what i mean how, how big of an issue do you think it still is i don't think i make a blanket statement for everybody well, I don't mean that. I, that's no, why i say well, profession I, I wanna, right yeah like, that's why i want to say as a profession mm-hmm. i actually find foresters to be quite open and receptive to a lot of things sure. okay. um compared to what i've seen even in agriculture yeah um and I say it like change is hard. Humans don't like change, generally speaking. Big time. Everybody course. wants the world to stay in this bubble and Let's be stagnant. Let's stay comfortable. And- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you're never growing unless you're uncomfortable, right? So um, so I think in some ways, but also there, there certainly is and has been, forestry has definitely been accused of um, – you know, wanting to keep things the way they always have. And the regulated professions have really been accused of that Uh, is having a system of what defines a forester, who gets into forestry and making that a very hard fixed box. Yeah. And the, the example used at the beginning when you're saying, I didn't know what to do in school is a great example because a lot of people have gone into the environmental biology, that stream of, post-secondary education and then went to work as a forester, loved it, went back and did their master's. And now we're saying you don't fit in our box. They're still working in forestry. right? So are we doing a good job protecting the public interest if we're not opening up and broadening I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who can become a forester? So if you're missing right. one course on macroeconomics, does that mean you're not a forester, even though you do forestry every day? I forgot all of my macroeconomics. So <laughs> don't worry about <laughs> <Exactly>. it. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, if I, if I say, you know, who and what, it depends. Um, one of the, the papers Chanel was reading recently was talking about just how technical information is changing so fast. So the Chanel is another, she's uh what's her, what's her role at the AFMP? She's um, the education just changed it. director of, I think she's the ex- continuing confidence or, or I think it's the education or, or something, executive we, we education lead or something. Yeah, Anyways, she works for it. AFMP. Yeah. Yes. So she's in charge <laughs> of all the smart stuff, not me. Um, so the rate of technology used to change about every 15 years, like the technical information. Yeah. Now it's like two and a half to three years. But by the time you plan to present it, it's obsolete. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time you're done school, it's yeah. obsolete. Right. right. Yeah. So that's where, again, you, when I went back to the, you know, what is a, what is a force professional? 
someone that's applying new science, up-to-date yeah. science, you have to constantly be on top of that, right? Yeah. And recognize that those things are changing all the time yeah. or else you're not doing your due diligence as a professional. Yeah, for sure. I, and there's an interesting line from that paper that I'll, I'll link it in the in the show notes, right? The omnipotent forester one. Mm-hmm. Um, it was near the very end, right? And it, uh, so it was written by uh, Marty Lukert from the U of A. And he said, in the end, the survival of the forestry profession will depend on its ability to serve the owners of the forests, right? And which that's, is the public. Which is the public and always has been, at least in Canada. Um, and so that ties into that. So, uh, okay. So let's jump into the, the, like, the solution to this, right? Like, how do we go about solving for this problem of like you said it starts with the schools and like i think this is this applies to any profession really Absolutely, i think yeah. it's pretty much anybody every any pro- profession that there is has continuing competence it's one of the core foundations Absolutely. of of ethics yeah is continuing competence because you have to know what you're doing doing it properly and you have to know what you don't know yeah. so you're only practicing in your lane as yeah. to what you're things change you gotta update yeah, yeah 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 and i think this yeah i think this concept of, of talking with the public and public interest all this stuff applies to pretty much any profession um which is interesting that we're probably a lot of parallel changes happening at different levels of different professions across the world i would say at the same time right mm-hmm. especially with the onset of the internet and everything else but um okay so it starts with your education, but then the continued competency thing. Um, I think I, I, I didn't know for a fact that AFMP has has provided opportunities for this type of stuff, right? I know for a fact that there's been courses and there's been opportunities at AGMs and there's been all kinds of stuff. Um, what is the what have you found to be the attendance to that those sort of things in relation to the hard science stuff? And um, with that, how do you think we can go about creating interest in the social science stuff as opposed to the hard science. Cause I think, like I said, we're, we're good at the hard science. We know mm-hmm. how to grow trees. We know mm-hmm. how to cut trees. We know how to protect the stream. We know how to avoid, uh, you know, nests and erosion and, and build a, you know, a culvert that's not going to ruin fish habitat. We know mm-hmm. this stuff. Yeah. What we don't know is human values and how they relate. The registrant's feedback to that is varies. We have people that send us emails. This is the most amazing thing you guys have ever done. Hands, you know, hats off. This is hands above anything ever done to people that are, you guys are off your rocker. (laughs) What are you doing? Why are you not doing technical pieces? Yeah. So you almost want to make it mandatory, but that's a whole other bag. Yeah. (laughs) So I do think that there's. Definitely a reluctance in the industry for people to spend money on continuing competence Mm. that I think it's more of an expectation in other professions, especially in the medical professions. You'd think here it would be like, I think it's, it it should be right. Like it's, yeah. And it's, but it's, I want to say even in agriculture for so many years, the government and then the nonprofit organizations provided education opportunities for so cheap that it's become almost a sense of entitlement that why should I have to pay for this, but you need to provide it. Definitely some people, their idea of continuing competence is I'm going to do my first aid course again. I'm going to do my (laughs) defensive driving course again. Um, So they have a different mindset about what continuing education means. That's doing the minimum to keep working. It's not... Yeah, not really expanding your horizons or trying to be better at your job. Right. Yeah. And it can, I, I mean, I get it. It can be challenging if you're, 
you know, a contractor and you're working in the field all the time and, you know, how do you do some of this? But the other thing that we do is with the Friday notices, we always have links to whatever free courses we can find and then other resources. So for example, your podcasts always haven't been in there as long as I've been around. So right. a little over four years. Thanks for that. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I tell people like download the podcast. I know you drive an hour each way to, to work every day. Right. So listen to your podcast while you're driving. Even with PDFs, you can put them on your phone and just put them on play and have them play on your iPhone. I don't know what a Samsung does, but, but on your <laughs> iPhone, you can just have them play. I listen to them that way all the time. Interesting. The other thing is books. I hardly ever read a physical book anymore because I spend a lot of time driving or yeah. shoveling poop. Audio books are the and bomb. So, <laughs> and so I literally put on a podcast or an audio book and mm-hmm. I read, you know, probably a, just about a book a week or a book every two weeks mm-hmm. on a variety of different work-related topics and general interest topics. Or sometimes religion or yeah, whatever exactly. else. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, yeah. that just... You know, I don't, I don't read a lot of, uh, fiction, but I read a lot of nonfiction and, and these yeah. types of things. And there's some, like Milo's recommended some amazing books oh, that yeah. I was like, wow. And you I, know and I truly don't, them. on an aside, I don't think I understand folks like you and Milo who are just like always listening to relevant content. <laughs> Chanel's like that too in my defense. <laughs> I'm, I am, I am, when I am not at work, I am constantly reading like science fiction and like reading stuff that's not real. Just oh, like, really? and it's not like, it, it, it's just cause I enjoy it. I don't get that anywhere else. Right. Yeah. But yeah, there's people like you who are just like super achievers and are just like, I am always doing something to better myself. And I'm like, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> and that's not what I expect from anybody. Yeah, and but, I, don't, I don't know if it's yeah. a super achiever or I just, you know, I really like what I do. Yeah, oh, no, and that's awesome. <laughs> and it's I, great. I, I, Apparently it's, I'm not committed enough. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because like in, in high school and whatever, like, you know, I like school and whatnot, but I was never like driven. I'm going to have a profession. And then when I started getting into actually working, you know, in a profession, then yeah. I was like, whole hog all in. So, you know, I did my master's at 40 while I worked full time and had a farm and was a single parent. So, you know, and did 25 to 40 hours a week of homework. So, you know, like, and I've, I've done since then, I'm pretty much always doing a course or reading a book or something to keep expanding. So I love it. Yeah. I remember, so I remember I I went to uh, this kind of asks an interesting question. I went to a Canadian Institute of Forestry conference a few years back and it was an indigenous consultation conference. And so there was a lot of indigenous speakers, um, a lot of people saying, you know, kind of telling their frustrations, telling their, their issues with, with the way consultation has gone. And it was, it was really just like an open floor for indigenous people to come and just like, like what's been going on? Like how's it? And it was, and it was, it was hard to listen to a lot of it. Right. Mm-hmm. But I remember one of the speakers came up and she said, she said, we've been talking a lot. Like we, we've been hitting the forest profession a lot right now. Like I imagine there's, there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of like confusion and a lot of defensiveness happening. And, um, we're asking you guys to be professionals in communication and understanding us. And under, I don't, I don't, and she's like, is it, reasonable for us to ask this of this profession to have these skills and to have Mm -hmm. this ability and it was interesting because there wasn't a lot of answers it was kind of people i think everyone had an array of answers right Mm -hmm. of like no it's not reasonable because we don't have that background and how can we possibly navigate this world if we don't 
That's not what we're here for. Supporting like, their bias. I got into forestry because <laughs> I love the forest and I want yeah. to be with trees, not because I want to talk to people. Yeah. And but the other side was it's not reasonable. However, it should be reasonable and mm-hmm. an expectation mm-hmm. that you have these skills. And so I think the forestry profession is changing in that it's yeah. it's becoming to the point where it's inevitable. Like, no, like that might not be why you got into this. But if you want to be able to manage the forest for the public good, you need to be able to communicate it and understand mm-hmm. it and to listen and to listening. Like that's the big one, right? Like I've said that quite a few times on mm-hmm. this podcast and other ones is that yeah, we need to have our ears open and not just hear, but we need to actually listen and internalize and self-monitor our own expectations and how those apply to the values of the public, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's it's becoming it's coming like like you said with the with the with the healthcare industry, right? Like you it's becoming almost an expectation that you can keep up with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas with forestry, maybe it's a little more challenging, but it almost gets to the point now where it's like, well, I think Things need to change, maybe, right? Like, yeah, yeah, but there's also another aspect to this, and so most of my analogies are always farm analogies. But that's fine. So I, <laughs> so I used to train horses a lot, okay. and uh, you know, you take a clinic with someone as a professional trainer because I even then, so I, I am a geek. Um, I would take <laughs> clinics every year with with professionals, and so I love this one trainer out of Quinell. His name was Artnoff, and he wrote English, and he did eventing and dressage and cutting, like a whole bunch of different things. Sure. And so I had grown up learning English and Western. So what I would always be like, Art, so why is in English it's taught this way and in Western it's taught this way? And he could give me this whole, oh, well, actually, and explain it all. And, and those so, are types of riding. Yeah, okay. different styles of riding. Yeah. So, but very different training methods. Okay. And so, and training methods have really evolved over time in, in the last 25 years with horses. So, but what I would do with a particular horse at a lesson with him, you know, in one year, and then I'd be riding a different horse two years later, and we'd be doing something similar. And you'd be like, oh, wait a minute. And you'd have this huge aha moment to what he said two years ago. And you're like, oh, I totally get it. And so as your skills develop, what you see and how you see things are really different. And so I'll Changes, use for, yeah. for my example in this job, when I did my original integrated resource management program, we did two years of indigenous studies. Right. And at that point, 22 years ago, everybody was like, why are we taking indigenous studies? When are we ever going to use this? Right. Probably one of the courses I've used the most right. in my professional career. Absolutely. But I also say I take at least one or two courses every single year relating to indigenous issues. Because even today, I will take a course and go, oh man, I never thought about that. Like I talk, you know, some of the colonial behaviors that we do that, you know, I'll have these light bulb moments when I'm like, oh wow. Yeah. You know, no wonder we're seen as doing this because that's horrible. Yeah. And it's, but again, it's just the way we do things. That's a European, whatever my family's Ukrainian and came over in the thirties. You know, there's lots of things that they did that are a reflection of where they came from. Yeah. Like all of us. And you don't tend to question your own culture. You just assume that's the way things should be done. Yeah. No. And so, you know, it's, it's a, your perspective and your understanding changes over time. So it's not like it's a one-off on communication and you never do it again. Right. It's that it's always evolving and changing. And as your expertise and your perception of the world changes, then you need to be looking at 
some of those things again, some of those things more in depth that are higher level or whatnot. Um, and even, you know, you talk about the cultures. That's another thing where it's, it's really great to interact with different people in that level of diversity mm-hmm. because it challenges the way we think and see and do things if you choose it to. Yeah. Um, because you can say, you know, see how it affects other people or, and again, if you're being curious is, is asking those questions of people and, you know, how, how do you see this? How does this come across to you? What are the challenges that you're facing here that, you know, give you different opportunities of things to look at and, and ways that things can change. Right. So that's why I don't think continuing ed is ever a one place in time. I'm done. That's good. Um, you know, as the science changes, as the social expectations change, as your experience change, those three pieces of being a professional, yeah. then then all of what you know is shifted and, and yeah. moved around. And you have to keep saying, you know, what is the best science related to this? Yeah. What is more information? And nowadays, like we're talking about audiobooks, there's some really good research-based books out there. Absolutely. That yeah. are 100% sound in the research for today, what's coming out and applying that to social sciences, Yeah, that it is, again, changing quite drastically all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting time to see, to see the gaps getting filled in, mm-hmm. right? Like just mm-hmm. to see like, okay, here's where we kind of were blind a little bit there. Here's where we had some issues here where maybe we were deficient in this concept and deficient in understanding this and relating this. And they're starting to see it's starting to diffuse a little more and these ideas start to go out and they start to like one profession starting to become more like another profession. And you know what I mean? They're starting to intermingle and yeah, it's a cool, cool time mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's, do you think it would be, I don't know. This is just, this is all just me thinking, but do you think it's reasonable as like a regulatory body to um, put in some kind of thing? Like, okay, as a regulated professional, uh, you were required to have X number of continuing competency hours in social whatever, right? And like this may de- be dependent on the role that you're in, but um, what like what do you see? Are there issues there that you're concerned about, or is that something that you think is you know a good idea, or I don't know. Part of it's just complexity. So we did yeah. go from a CC program that was, you know, you needed X number of policy hours and X number of this hours yeah. and that hours. And it becomes impossible for you guys to just enter the information in, right? Right. So we moved to a simpler model that... I was it, glad you moved away from that, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it was like, oh my goodness. And we had a manual well, It was hard to understand what was what. You right. Like- <laughs> so you had a manual that's yeah. 30 pages deep of all the things that you're doing. So, yeah. you know, we've... And again, I, this whole thing, I'm a practical person. I'm a farmer. So, you know, trying to move to something that's much more practical. So you'll see in your CC hours specifically for foresters now, when you go in to enter your CCs, there's literally two pop-ups that'll tell you what you can use, Yeah. how many hours you need. There's gauges. It's It's super simple to follow, right? Um, We do do drastically encourage people, like if you phone and say, I don't have enough CC hours, um, we're really encouraging people to think outside of the box of, I don't need you to go take another plant course or another first aid course. Yeah. Look at negotiation. Look at stakeholder engagement. How are you encouraging them to do that? Just in conversations that we have with people. Yeah. Um, and that's why you'll see in the, the Friday notice that goes out, there's a wide variety. We've had stuff on, um, uh, 
uh, diversity, equity, and yeah. inclusion lately. Yeah. We've had, you know, your podcast. There's we that have, free to grow podcast yeah. that's out. That's CIF. That's CIF, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. CIF. Yeah. So, you know, different things like that. Again, that we're going to model the behavior we want to see is so making some of those different. So you'll still see some technical stuff. You'll still see some very forestry focus, but you'll start seeing some other, or other things that are outside of that realm. Yeah. Um, do you think you can wield like I, 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 this is just a question? I'm not yeah. saying I'm advocating this. Yeah. Do you think you can wield a bigger hammer when it comes to like, hey, we've like I don't know how you would do this. You'd say, okay, we've pulled the public in quotations, right? Um, there, we think that we need more of this skill. Mm-hmm. Can you wield a bigger hammer as a regulator and be like, okay, the our job is to is to uphold the public interest and public values. Um. This is where we're. This is where the public says we're deficient, and and everyone needs to do a little bit of this. Yeah, our legislation says the continuing confidence program can be whatever council defines it to be. Interesting. So they could, um, and certainly, I'm sure you'd have a lot. Of, yeah, I'm sure you'd have a lot of problems and a lot You're of like, my big pushback. silence. I'm like, yeah. Little uh, gerbils running in my brain really Absolutely. fast. Absolutely. It's, um, <laughs> it's not a straightforward answer. I get <laughs> no, that. No, yeah. it's not. And so there's the issue with the complexity of people trying to navigate and manage. And and then there's some people that are working in areas where, you know, if you're working in a nursery yeah. and there's only so much that you do that you're not dealing with the public, yeah. you're not, you know, those types of no, no, things sure. or yeah. someone that's hanging ribbon in the bush. There's different jobs. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And so- we, the CCs are, the program is, you know, regularly reviewed. So it's one of these things after we finish the exam modernization, the in-training program, then we're going to, to move to back to reviewing it again. And so, um, and there's always the, we talk about even in law, there's what's hard written on paper and there's the intention of, and the intention of a CC program is always to keep evolving, yeah. not to just maintain what you already Stagnated. have. Yeah, right? like, yeah. Keep learning better skills that you already know. And right. Like, yeah. So, but there is a shift now. Um, the research is saying that hourly programs aren't effective because you're just filling the hours. Now there's more of a shift in the research saying that continuing competence should be based more on you creating a competency profile for yourself as part of your job and your performance review with your employer and saying, this is where I am or want to be if you're looking at something higher. Cause lots of people are doing CC hours for something they're working towards, yeah. um, as opposed to where they are necessarily right now at this moment in time. And so building up a continuing competence program that's based on where you're going, what you're doing. Yeah. And it's more of a integrated into your job yeah. and yeah. self-driven. So, so where's and, the just, just out of, where do you think the malleability is in like that, like the public interest piece though? Then, right? Do you think that that because if we're just leaving it up to every professional to figure it out themselves? Well, so yeah, no. A, a great example of that is the forest technologist standards that we've just completed the the draft on. Yeah, and so we developed the standards trying to be forward looking. Gotcha. And so now you'll see half of the standards are soft sciences. Ah, uh, okay. And so there's that's, an how, indigenous, that's how you can push it. Right. Like, okay. And there's an indigenous component in almost every single that's a specific indigenous, indigenous competency within each one of those standards. Interesting. So, and those are entry to practice. Yeah. But again, 
that's going to be the baseline. That's so the, yeah, yeah, yeah. most of the programs have now integrated those programs in. So whether it's communication aspects, whether it's leadership, whether it's indigenous training, et cetera, they've put them into the programs, but they weren't recognized in the standards. And now, so that's where we can drive it is, is setting the base entry to practice is yeah, there has to right. be more of the social and sciences. And so if, the next one would be after we're done the forest technologist. And these are slow processes. Like this is four yeah, years in the making to right. make this happen. Right. Um, and I'm talking like weekly, monthly meetings mm. across the, with people from across the country. Um, so the next version again, as we go back to the forester standards and, and revise them. So there are some social pieces in there, social science, soft science pieces in there but not as many as what we now have on the forest technologist side. Interesting. So do you think it's kind of, I just had a thought while you were talking about like who can, who can push that if they think it's missing. Do you think that's more of a like individual role for sure, but there's always going to be um, people who are comfortable in a certain thing and they're, they're doing their thing and they're not they're just not thinking about what they're not thinking about. Like you mm-hmm. said, they don't know what they don't know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think maybe like, individual companies like forest companies can should be maybe mandating that like hey if you're an employee of x company and you're in the woodlands division and you're out there doing this stuff uh it's mandatory that you do do whatever x number of hours or you you do this course or you you there is a lot of mandatory training with licensees so certainly they have internal especially the bigger licensees they've got internal courses that you can take and we see those in people cc entries whether they're taking indigenous consultation or whether they're taking a negotiation whatever um that they have set courses that they're doing so part of it comes from there and like as an employee, I would always encourage people too. when you're hiring on with an employer yeah. is to see what the company supports for continuing competence. So are they giving you time to study? That tells you a lot about stuff. their values. Yeah, yeah for sure. Do, do they have an allocated amount of funds for all staff that you can do, whether it's internal, internal training courses that they have, yeah. or do they support some external courses that you could do as well? So we yeah. have a budget every year for staff that's proportionately based that, you know, I get so much money, Chanel gets so much money. Everybody gets a certain amount of money for training. Um, and then there's government grants that you can, there's federal government grants that you can get to boost that as well. Um, so that's you as an employee is making sure that your employer supports it. Um, time and, and money wise. Um, the other thing is the universities to some degree can drive that obviously. And that comes from the employers that sit on those, those, uh, program advisory committees. Right. Saying this is what we need. Right. Yeah. Is as an industry, we're seeing that people are lacking these courses. So they need to be some of the mandatory courses. And so whether that means there's less electives or whether there's some courses, courses come and go. Yeah. But I would caution and say that is a slow process. Universities change really, really slow. You don't say. Yeah. So <laughs> it can take, it's like policy within government. Are you telling Expect me that the academic years. process isn't fast? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we use the term yeah. glacial in my world. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, I want to know, no, this is good. This is really good. I want to know like uh, in your position, what are some things in this in this conversation that we're having, what are some things that like worry you, and what are some things that we'll kind of finish off with? What are some things that like that are really you know make you proud of what's going on, or you know what I mean, make you feel good and like know that we're going in the right direction? 
Um, it's always so good to start like, with like what, where, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, okay, what let's not just have this be like a glad handing, like pat on our back. Like, yeah. We're doing a good job. Like, where do we need to work? What do we need to work on? I think we've identified a lot of that, but yeah. more specifically from your perspective. And then, yeah. I think there's obviously there's specific training and, and doing, you know, taking on more of the soft science courses to complement the hard sciences. Yeah. Um, that whole element of curiosity though yeah. is huge, huge. Um, and I think just as an, a, maybe an expectation that people should be like an individual expectation that you should keep doing this. Like if you call yourself a professional, then remember those three key elements of, you know, knowing what's the best science out there and that's science in general. So the arts, yeah. arts research is still research. It's still, yeah. you know, well-documented that it's, it's not artsy fartsy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that pie in the sky kind of stuff. You know, there's a lot of research that goes in, into that work. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, being able to apply at it and look at, apply it and look at it from different situations. But, um, the whole, you know, like, I go back to David Bohm, who is a theoretical physicist, and I love his work, and that would really show what a geek I am. But, <laughs> um, and I, this work specifically, I don't really read about theoretical physics, but, uh, but he, I've tried. He, it's yeah, not easy. <laughs> I know. Um, he, he's done some great write ups talking about dialogue versus discussion. Right. And that it's a, it's not an easy mindset. And even I struggle with it because it's not my personality type whatsoever right. is to have that curiosity to ask questions and be in inquiry mode, which yeah. is something Milo encourages all the time. Yeah. Um, be in inquiry mode instead of, you know, again, yeah. we go out and do an indigenous consultation and we're like, yeah, that was the greatest. We're the best. <sighs> we did it perfect. And then the feedback is, you know, you guys botch that horribly yeah so instead of just going well you guys don't know anything come back and say what did we do wrong how can we make it better for next time what are we yeah. missing you know and Forgetting so that, that perpetual we, yeah just like let, letting go of that concept that like oh we know what we're doing yeah Being like okay we need to be open to con like to input from anywhere mm -hmm. if we're really going to make sure that what we're doing is the right thing mm -hmm. and we're doing it the right way for everybody's values yeah yeah Oh, yeah. that makes sense. Well, you wanted to find that di that difference. You said the dis difference between discussion and dialogue. Yeah, and those are the terms he uses. And so what he says is dialogue is I have an idea. You have an idea. I defend my idea. You defend your idea. I defend my idea. And he, so he uses it in the context of scientists. Well, that's is, discussion. Or sorry, that's discussion. Yeah. yeah. So he uses it in the context of scientists because there's always opposing views. As yeah. I say, I believe in climate change and you it's say, I don't believe. Yeah, it's yeah. a debate. That's all it is. And so versus dialogue, where if you say, I don't believe in climate change, I would say, oh, I'm curious about that. Let me tell me why it is that you think that and explain yeah. the nuances of what it is. Because we all have, there's like what's called the ladder of inference too, is there's the stuff that we say and then there's all the stuff that we don't say or the reasons we do things that are hidden. Yeah. And, uh, um, and so again, there's all these reasons. And I think Milo had a great example in the podcast that you did with him when he was talking about herbicide use with indigenous, um, people. And so the real reason that somebody was against herbicide was because their friend had passed away from cancer. Yeah. But you have to ask enough questions and get to know people well enough before they'll talk about that. Yeah. And so they've got a real 
fear and a legitimate fear, but you have to invest the time to research and, and make them feel comfortable enough that they can bring that forward and talk about it, but create yeah. the space for them to talk. Exactly. Right. So I think you have to that's, make sure that they're comfortable because they're not, otherwise they're just, like you said, it's just a discussion. They're just right. telling you what they're about. Like, yeah, I hate herbicide yeah. period. End yeah. of discussion. There's no wiggle room on that. Yeah. Right. No, and I yeah. can go, well, the policy says we have to apply herbicide and the research is sound, the herbicide safe. Yeah. And you're just at loggerheads. Nothing, nothing gets accomplished because exactly. you're not actually talking about the real issue, which is a lot deeper. Yeah. 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 No, and I like that concept of dialogue of just it's building on itself and you both come to a realization that like, hey, we have we have similar values and we're just mm-hmm. coming to different conclusions mm-hmm. with the same information or slightly different information or whatever. Yeah. And the research around <clears throat> social license too, like there's been tons of research done on it, especially in the ag industry. There's an excellent uh, organization of the U.S. that did quite a bit, like 25 years worth of research. And that was the conclusion they came to was if you want to – identify with with groups and be able to to come to some kind of compromise on something yeah you have to understand their values big time and, and you so, only do that by listening exactly <laughs> and asking questions so yeah. you know in that the forestry industry is no different if you're going to go in and harvest in an area and you have to do consultation yeah. with whatever user groups that may be yeah. then you're going to have to find out what their values are and that comes down to having conversations and relationships with yeah, people, right? Big time. And so there's often situations where people have very opposing views, mm-hmm. but once they feel heard, they can let go of pieces, compromise on pieces, et cetera. But yeah. if they don't feel heard, yeah. they're never going to change yeah. how it is that they view the subject. Yeah. You just dig your heels in and And that's what that's the profession it. needs to learn is how to make sure that everyone feels heard. Yeah. And also, actually, uh, we have to be open to that change as well ourselves, right? Um, we have to be listening enough to be able to change our opinion as well, not just expect them to change their opinion, right? The whole point is that this is a two-way street and that um, maybe we're missing something. You know, we don't go into this thinking that like, well, if we listen long enough, they'll come around. We also have to be listening well enough to recognize when – we might be deficient and we might need to change our opinion in one way or another, right? Um, we don't want to just expect the public to do so. That's the real work, I think, is for us to dive deep and to to ask those questions of ourselves as well, right? And by, you know, actually hearing them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not just like, well, they feel heard. We're good to go. Like, no, yeah, but like exactly. actually hearing. We had a conversation actually, with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, is there is there anything you want to um, – is there any kind of final thoughts that you want to add to this before we call it a day? I feel like we've we've made some good points and I think it's it's a discussion that I think I've worked my way around a few times, maybe mm-hmm. with Milo and a few other people, but it's always good to refresh and kind of get a different perspective, which is like from you, especially from someone who's in this role of, you know, directly protecting the public interest in a, a very specific policy way. Uh, which is the world we live in. Mm-hmm. So, no, this is great. I enjoyed the conversation. But is there anything? Yeah, is there any kind of final? Well, I was thinking because you, you said what's working well too, and I yeah. think this is an example. And this is not a pat on our back or anything. Is you know, like how do we walk that walk of what we do? And I look at the exam modernization project that we're doing in the in training program. You know, originally it was just put the exam online. We don't care what it looks like. Just get it online. Yeah, and. Once we did the research, so Chanel did an extensive research project, 
And she was just trying to figure out what legislation and what objectives we wanted. But everyone she interviewed was like, we hate the exam. <laughs> and so she Surprise. was like, resigned yeah. herself to, okay, I, I obviously need to listen to people and hear what they have to say. And so she came up with a, a really good research paper identifying what all of the problems were with the exam and why we needed to start from scratch at the beginning and completely revise it and then come up with an in-training program because there's areas that we are epically failing at, we recognize that we're failing at, um, that we need to to change how we're doing things to to help new entrants into the profession. Um, That's be a able huge to, step. To do their job, yes. Yeah. And so now we're applying that to everything that we do moving forward too. So as we're building the courses, instead of Chanel just saying, I'm going to write a course on whatever, yeah. um, and some of them will be, you know, we'll be writing them internally because we have the expertise. But again, we don't know what we don't know. So yeah. Chanel and I both do a lot of research on the side, looking at each of the topics and figuring out what areas we may have deficiencies in or where do we need subject matter experts. Yeah. And then Chanel's working with committees for each section. And those are different industry representatives, um, stakeholders, public, et cetera. We have people that are in the profession, people that are outside of the profession, all that are volunteering their time and, and helping with that because they have something of value to add and they want to be heard. So yeah. going through that process and them designing the course outlines, helps, them yeah. having input into what the course is instead of us as a regulator being prescriptive. Yeah. And to go back to your comment earlier too, you said, you know, is there the hammer? And we have a hammer for some things. We have legislation, but the carrot often works better. And so right. encouraging people to to be a part of yeah. the process mm -hmm. and to having that input, then they have, again, it's a self-regulated profession. If you yeah. want to have influence on what's going on, then be a part of that self-regulation and volunteer for committees and yeah. and be one of the voices that gets to help build what the future is going to look like. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. so again, what do you want the CC program Are to look like? Are you trying to tell me something, Carla? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to tell everyone that's listening, if you're a member of a regulated profession, that's that's how you get involved and how you can shape what your profession looks like. Yeah. Is that, you know, if they have a call for people to volunteer on a continuing competence committee yeah. to shape that and you hate and or love the continuing competence program, volunteer. Yeah. And we're not, again, I'm... I'm probably the person that, that would be more likely to encourage the person that is cantankerous with me or opposes everything I do to be a member of a committee. We need you as opposed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to um, seeking out everyone that supports what I believe in. Because yeah. I've found in my experience, we go to the experience piece of, piece of professionalism, if, if I seek out the people that don't agree with what I'm saying, I get far more value out of it because it'll often give me a completely different way of looking at things. Challenges your ideas. If yeah. I'm curious about... If you're listening. If I'm listening <laughs> and I'm asking questions, yeah. then it's like, you know, because we tend to be as, as humans, you start out, I think, in life as being pretty black and white and the oh, yeah. older you get the grayer things get yeah. and you like no i don't believe in black and white anyway maybe it's just me i don't know but yeah i used to hate it like in riding clinics and stuff i'd say what do i do about blah 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 and the instructor would say it depends and i'm like i hate that no, stop yeah. saying it oh, yeah. depends just give me an answer but the older i get and the more experience i get my answer is it depends and every time i'm like oh hand to head 
but that's the way it is, right? And so again, when we're looking at these these complex situations, like the in training and the exam and whatnot, because they are quite complex, yeah. is having people with opposing views and different views. It's really challenging to work with as a group. Yeah. So it's a lot of work for us. Um, but you can get so much more richness to to the product that we're getting. Yeah. So again, that that piece of what are we doing well, I think, you know, modeling some of that and the forest tech standards are another one that, you know, we invited the post-secondary schools to participate, the regulators mm-hmm. to participate. And it was a group of us that would never have been done before. It was the regulators sat down at a program uh, table. They said, this is what foresters are. This is what forest technologists yeah. are. And that was it. Right. So, mm. so you know, I think we're getting better at it. The consultation piece is still a struggle because, again, yeah. how do you open up something that's so technical to the public to get feedback? Yeah. Um, you know, so, again, there's always room for growth. There's always room to to do better at what we do. But, yeah, you know. Absolutely. You know, and I, and I like, I, I'm very impressed with the way that, uh, the way that you and Chanel have managed to take uh AFMP as like with that point exactly of saying like we've tried to remove the ego from this position. Um, I think that's a huge, like I think that's the biggest thing you've done, right? Mm -hmm. Is you managed to take away the, well, you need to pass this hurdle. This is a hurdle to get into this profession. And Mm -hmm. like you removed that and you've gone, okay, how do we make sure that this profession is actually the best it can be? Mm -hmm. Right. And okay, we do that by being open and by listening and to, and I can't imagine it's easy. Well, it's not easy to remove the ego for anybody, but as a organization that's representing people or representing a group of people, whatever it is, um, to remove the, what's the word? Um, like the systematic ego. Yeah, it's a culture because there's a culture to to how a lot of the regulatory bodies and some of them very much get in the groove of what they do and that's what they do. And then there's some that are constantly trying to improve. Are we and, actually doing the thing we're supposed to be doing? Or right. are, are we just like rolling because this is what we've always done? Right. It's, yeah. Because the public interest is a moving target, right? So Of course, all, especially with the internet and increased right. communication and it's it's constantly evolving. So yeah. we have to not be like darting left and right, constantly trying to please everyone. So the other thing you talked about, well, like, you know, how do you please the fringe people? I've learned you can't please the fringe people. <laughs> so, you know, and I don't want to be mediocre and just say, yeah, we appease the masses. Yeah. But to some degree, we have to do what's best for the bulk of the group, the same as any government policy in theory should be doing. It yeah, protects yeah. it protects minorities, of course, but yeah. it also is serving, you know, the bulk of the people in the middle. And so, but, it, it, you know, in the practices that we're doing too, when you talk about renewing barriers, we have an obligation of fairness to be able to serve those fringes of people that are coming into the profession that for whatever reasons don't fit in the boxes. Yeah. And so being able to find ways to, and that a lot of the time for me, that's, that's where my learning opportunities, it's like, okay, so, you know, Jane Doe has applied, they don't fit in the boxes, but you know, they fit 96% of the boxes. Right. Then 
how do I figure out a way that's still meeting legislative requirements and still serving the public interest, but I can be fair to that person and find a way to make it work for everybody. Realize the benefit of having someone with outside perspective in here as well. And it comes right back to the exact same thing of me having to ask questions, ask other regulatory bodies, ask other professionals, you know, what's your perception of this? What do you see? And not just seeing this is my box and this is how I do things. So, you know, it's, it's just an example. And, in my profession and what I'm doing that would be the same as a forester that says, well, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah, absolutely. But now we need to, you know, tweak how things are doing. How do you go about doing it? Yeah, no, it's tough, but you guys have done a great job. And I am, I'm genuinely impressed with that. What, from what it was to what that organization now is, is pretty impressive. It's, it's awesome. Um, I think I want to finish off just list because Milo couldn't be here. And I think mm-hmm. this summarizes in very quick little ways, what Milo sent us because well, he was unable to join. But um, so he has five points here and, and I think I'm just going to, I'm just going to pretty much read them off. And I think they, they summarize this whole conversation. I think really well, um, somewhat by accident, somewhat on purpose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he said, Milo said uh, to quote Stephen Covey, um, I think that's how you say his Covey. name. Covey. Covey. Okay. Just quote Stephen Covey. Uh, seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. So that means good listening skills and a willingness to hear and to learn. We talked about that a lot. Um, number two, he said, be open to new ideas and new approaches regardless of their source. So no judgment, right? Remove your ego, remove yeah, the judgment. Really, read religious books. And read apply religious books when you're not religious. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, number three, open our conversations on input early. So that's what like you said early on, right? Was don't go in with the plan and say, hey, do you like our plan? You go in before the plan's made and you go, hey, what values would you like represented Mm -hmm. in this plan? And then you create the plan based off of that instead of the opposite, which is trying to fit the values in after it's made. Mm -hmm. Um, Number four, he said, seek participation in the process of planning and land management. So same kind of thing, just trying to involve people early. And then finally, very simple, um, basically removing the ego, right? He said, overcoming our fear of change, which can be applied to anybody. So Mm -hmm. Um, I think that some, thanks a lot, Milo, for giving us that. That was like, took Carla and I an hour and a half to, to get all those things out, but you just summarized it and provided a quick takeaway for everybody here. So thank yeah. you for that. Introvert versus extrovert, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so there we go. So that's, I think that's good. If you're happy, I'm happy with this conversation. It's been great. So thank yeah, you for, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining me. This is great. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I love talking about these weird concepts that I don't understand fully and to try to work them out as we talk. I think you can probably tell that was kind of happening a bit. And big thanks to Carla for coming on to have this conversation. I know it's challenging to, you know, make sense of in a, in a way that you can put it to words very concisely, right? And thanks a lot to Mila Mihalovic also for providing some of his inputs and some of his thoughts around this subject. And uh, yeah, I hope you like it. If you uh, rate and review it, I really, really appreciate it, whether you're on iTunes or you're on uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you're at, rate and review it, share it on social media, tell a friend. All those things are great. I really appreciate it. And uh Yeah, we'll catch you next time. Thanks a lot for listening. Take it easy.